Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we have both an interesting and accomplished member of the adaptive community. Sherry Blowett is a seven-time Paralympic medalist. She won Boston twice. She won uh, New York twice. She won LA four times. She also is a doctor, a doctor of uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation, as well as sports medicine, an assistant professor of PMNR, which is what you say, I guess, when you're in the biz at Harvard Medical School and is also an attending physician at Brigham uh, and and Women's Hospital and Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital. Sherry, I mean, I just read your your bio, like, and you have two kids. I mean, like, this is this is sort of ridiculous. Like, how do you how, how do you manage all this stuff? Great question. <laughs> um, well, I would say that um, you know I think you know moving through life as a student athlete for many years and then retiring from elite sport or elite competition, but then moving on to other professional endeavors. I feel like that whole journey is an exercise in time management. (laughs) So so all of those tools and skills were crafted over many years. Um, But, you know, I, I feel like at the present time, especially with our two young kids, it's just, it's a village approach. You know, we have a lot of help, a lot of hands on deck. A lot of days aren't perfect, but you roll with the punches and you have fun along the way. (laughs) And, um, and, uh, you know, all these things are just, uh, you know, so meaningful to me that I could never imagine, you know, not being a mom or not being a physician and pursuing my, you know, professional career and my passions. And obviously my background as an athlete um, is part of my identity. So I feel like I just pursued the things I love (laughs) over the course of life. And you make it happen, honestly. We're building toward Boston right now. Uh, Boston is what is a week and a half away, I think, something like that, a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And Boston goes right past your house in Wellesley. You're talking about your your athletic career has informed what you're doing now. How much do your kids who are young know about you as an athlete is watching these people go by does that help them go oh yeah mommy used to do that yeah yeah well we talk about it all the time and we we show them pictures and watch videos and try to make that connection um and i feel like my daughter stella who's actually right here <laughs> behind me you know she um keeping an eye on you yeah. that definitely is she's um you know she's big enough to certainly to connect the dots and to get excited about the marathon and to, you know, go check it out and watch the wheelchair racers go by and then the elite runners go by and then the excitement of all the masses, you know, coming through and all the energy that that brings. So um, I feel like, um, yeah, she's starting to connect it. Um, Our little guy, he's two, so he'll get there at some point. He's not quite, those neurons aren't quite firing yet, but, but he's on his way. Um, but yeah, it's funny because, you know, when I, when I came to Boston to race the marathon and, um, as an elite athlete and with the goal of trying to, you know, perform at a high level and potentially bring home a win, um, I wasn't a Boston resident then. So, um, I, at the time I was initially in undergrad at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and then I moved on and started medical school at Stanford. So I was out in California 
So I was a, you know, West Coaster at that time. And so flying out to Boston, you know, it was always this, okay, big cross country journey. And then you arrive in Boston and you have those two days of training and then the excitement of the competition and then you leave, right? So when I moved here um, in 2009 for my residency, my medical residency, um, it was, it was this like ultimate sort of, um, clash of some clash or um convening of so many like worlds and parts of my identity it was initially sort of I think honestly confusing but the longer I've lived here and started to you know really adopt the identity of you know being a Boston resident and being a New Englander um, and now I you know ironically living near the course um now it's 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 now it seems more natural and it's something more that's just a really interesting thing to reflect on and to be proud of um, I, I, my route to work at the Brigham and at Harvard goes down, um, route 16, which if you know Boston, you know that that's like the main drag through, um, Natick and Wellesley and then into Newton before you take the right corner by the fire station to get onto Com Ave, right? right? And so I, and, and if you're a wheelchair racer, you know that the portion of the race through downtown Wellesley and then just beyond into the Newton Lower Falls is that really, really screaming fast downhill section where, um, you know, as a woman in the women's division, we would hit like 35, 40 miles an hour. The guys are hitting like 45 or 50 miles an hour. And um, now I like drive that every day at my work. So it's like, you know, um, it's just so interesting how how much this part, you know, this city and the suburbs and the, the marathon course transforms on race day. Um, and then how even just the day after race day, it's just the burps, you know, but I think, I think that's really cool. As you're driving into town, do you catch yourself like checking out road conditions and potholes <laughs> <Yes>. and <laughs> these kinds of things? Like, and, and obviously now you also know what Patriot's Day is. Mm -hmm. As you came in, you probably had no idea really what Patriot's Day is. What is that? <laughs> exactly. It's like made up holiday. Yeah. It's a day where like the whole city gets to take the day off. <laughs> you know? like, and and Maine does games. too. Massachusetts and Maine, right? They're the only yeah. two that yeah. celebrate Patriot's Day. Exactly. The third exactly. Monday in yep. April, which yep. is when the Boston Marathon runs and the Red Sox play a matinee game. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the whole yeah. city is just super fired up and you're so cool. crossing your fingers, hoping for good weather. The last year I did it was 2017, which was like a tailwind and a spectacular day. And then the next year was freezing rain. Oh, that and was the worst. 30 degrees and a headwind <laughs> and I was like and, and I forgot to sign up or I didn't sign up early enough to get into it for 2018 and I was like oh that's such a bummer that I didn't get to sign up for the hypothermia race so uh but when were you because you were talking <laughs> about like you did undergrad at Arizona then you went to Stanford for medical school and you were still competing on mm -hmm. a high level when you were at, me at medical school I was how long did that last <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my, the peak of my competitive years were actually through the same years that I was a medical student. So, and it was just, it, I, you know, I wouldn't have planned it that way, but it's just how life works, right? Like you peak when you peak. And, um, and, you know, obviously I had been, you know, training and striving to compete at a high level all through undergrad. And, um, you know, of course had the good fortune of training with some really fantastic teammates and coaches at the, at the U of A. 
And, um, and then when I made the jump to California and moved out to the Bay Area and started medical school, um, you know, suddenly it was this big transition because I didn't have my people anymore in terms of my adaptive community. I mean, there are adaptive sports in the Bay Area for sure, but I didn't have my, you know, my collegiate team to train with on a day-to-day basis. So I had to, um, it, it pressed me a little bit and I had to um, really, you know, get to know the community and seek out resources and ultimately, you know, looked around and asked a lot of folks and ultimately connected with a triathlon coach. And, um, and interestingly, I think it was the, the insight of that triathlon coach who understood that, and he was a great coach, and he understood the dynamics of both running and cycling and, um, you know, preparing an athlete for an elite cycle of both like your peak and your recovery phases. And, um, and I honestly think that that transition was one of the things that actually helped me go to the next level performance wise. Um, and, uh, and, you know, when I was in my first year of med school, uh, was at the same time frame as we had the trials for Athens. And then um, ultimately, you know, the Athens 2004 games. And, um, and I took, you know, the, the Summer Paralympics are typically in September, like late August, September timeframe. And so um, that worked out pretty well, because I had the the summer before to be free of studies and to be able to fully train and travel and compete. Um, and Athens ended up being my best games, <laughs> you know, which I wouldn't have ever anticipated, but, um, but, uh, you know, we'll supposed to be in right. school though, when you were competing in Athens. Yeah. I took the semester off. I did take the semester off. Okay. Okay. And then, um, and then I, you know, it was continued through med school and was still a student when Beijing rolled around in 2008. And um, prior to Beijing, I took, uh, leave of absence for about nine months before the games. So I did med school. I don't, I think many people don't know this, but because of all this, I did med school in six years instead of four because of these leaves that I took. And then in the, in the years like preceding the games or when things were really ramping up, I would kind of like my schedule a lot and, um, you know, do more research things that were flexible as opposed to like a really heavy class and clinical schedule. So I, um, I kind of, molded it <laughs> to be able to be a student athlete through that time. But it was, you know, having the ability to do that was really one of the reasons why I chose Stanford because they actually had a pretty good history of um, several Olympians having been students there. And when I went to interview there, you know, I, I was pretty clear that I didn't plan on totally leaving my athletic identity behind just because I was starting med school. And um, they were very receptive to it and, in fact, really excited about it. So that's when I knew it was a good fit for me as a school. Um, as the complete person kind of thing, right? So you have the athletic side, you have the, the medical side. You're going through med school as you're still competing. How much did one inform the other and how much did the other inform the one kind of thing, like the athlete informing informing what you're doing in studies and then the studies informing you know ways to apply that to I mean we hear about like Roger Bannister right he was his his right. own like <laughs> he was his guinea pig that's right the four minute yeah, mark. I think right. it was definitely I think it was definitely mutually beneficial um both in terms of the content but also the um you know I mean I think you'll hear a lot of student athletes say this whether it's an undergrad or grad school um, that that student athlete blend is actually a pretty powerful blend. They they just go well together because the discipline that you need to um, train, you know, to get up, get your training in, 
be focused on your sport and, um, and your performance, those things, they just, they translate well to also being like a dedicated student. And, um, you know, I found that like an average day actually came together pretty well, you know, at Stanford, we, I'm sure even more so now, but even then they would record all the classes and you could watch it virtually later. So I would usually get up and train in the morning pretty early. And by the time I trained and then would like obviously get back and change and be able to get to class, I could usually make it by nine. And, um, and class started at eight. So I would usually miss the first hour, but I could go back and watch that later, um, you know, at, at the in late afternoon or in the evening. But I'd still be able to be there from, you know, nine to three or four when everything's finished for the day. And then if I needed to do some lifting or something, you know, tuck something in at the end of the day, that was possible. So, you know, the student, the student athlete blend works pretty well. It, it works better than having a full time job. I mean, if I tried to train with what I do now, that would be really hard, right? Because the student lifestyle, no matter how restrictive it seems, it's still more flexible than a lot of other lifestyles. <laughs> About this idea of the triathlon, when you started training with the triathlon group, that was a different mode of training, a different mode of looking at it. Did that you know, affect the way that you trained, obviously, but then also affect the way that you looked at kind of like the medical view of it. It's so easy to have one viewpoint, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that starting to get integrated into the triathlon community and particularly working with this coach definitely gave me another level of insight and savviness around um, some of the, um, I mean, our, our, you know, to be frank, our coaching at U of A was great, but um, it was it was very wheelchair racing specific. And interestingly, for that reason, I think we, may have actually been missing some other like training principles and things that can translate from other sports that, that actually ultimately to me ended up being really helpful. Um, and this coach also had like a really good, in, you know, he's really well-trained and really insightful and savvy on things like sports nutrition and, you know, things like training cycles and how long certain aspects of the cycle should be and peaking and tapering. And I think that level of of um, savviness and professionalism in his coaching practice was really helpful to me. So it was, it was, um, I mean, in I, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have both, right. You'd have that intensive wheelchair racing expertise, plus the intensive, just coaching expertise at that time. I mean, you know, you were competing through then too, Chris, those people were hard to come by and there were a lot of them in the U S you know? And so, um, so it was sort of, I think, hard to find both of those in the same person in that time frame in the U.S. But, but um, by the time I went to Stanford and then started to work with this triathlon coach, I, I knew the sport, right? I had been already been competing for internationally for five or six years by then. So um, I think the part that I was missing at that time was actually what he could offer, interestingly. Sometimes um, it's just a good fit too, right? right? You need yeah. that personal fit, whatever. And sometimes as an athlete, you don't know what you need mm -hmm. until it presents itself to you and you go, oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And mm -hmm. now look at this person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you start seeing gains and that's the most exciting part as an athlete mm -hmm. is that when you start seeing those gains, then you go, oh yeah, this is, this is great. And it's working out really well. Yeah. So there was the Paralympic side for you where you were really more of a sprint. I mean, you kind of did a little bit of everything. I mean, all from, from 100 up through 5,000 and actually. <laughs> marathon. Yeah. 
yeah, different time frames. Like I started, I'm, Sydney was really the games where I did more of the shorter sprints because that was my first Paralympics and I was pretty young. Um, I was just sort of, I was 20 in Sydney. So I was coming out of those junior ranks and, you know, going to junior nationals and being a part of that whole scene. And, um, you know, most young people, rightfully so, we start them, you know, we start them on the track and we start them with shorter distances as you're learning the sport. And so- um, come back. That's right. <laughs> They're like, oh, I can go do 100 meters. Okay, that doesn't hurt too much. 5,000 exactly. meters, 12 exactly. and a half laps. Like, that's a long way. Totally, right. So by the time I hit Sydney, I just hadn't, honestly, I hadn't really explored a lot of road racing yet um, or really marathon really hadn't piqued my interest yet at that time not because I mean honestly but most of it I think was just exposure like I hadn't really been integrated into that road racing community yet I was kind of a trackie coming out of those junior ranks and so um, so I raced all those shorter events in Sydney and then in the time frame between Sydney and Athens was when I um, honestly I think a lot of it was where I was living in the country like being in Tucson and then being in the Bay Area where there's this intense and really um, incredible endurance sport culture. You know, you're driving down the road, you're, you're very hard pressed to not get to know someone who's a you know, a distant cyclist, road bikers, triathletes, marathoners, they're everywhere, right? And so, so, um, so I think I just started to get to know those people as part of the athletic community and, um, and it just really piqued my interest. So I started to do more road racing. I'd already been doing some 5Ks and 10Ks like Peachtree and, you know, some of the, the um, bigger Bloomsday, you know, some of the bigger ones in that time frame. Um, but um, in that, that, that quad in between um, Sydney and Athens is when I started to sort of um, drink the Kool-Aid, right, of potentially taking up more of an identity of being a more uh, an endurance athlete and getting really curious and interested in the marathon. And then, you know, trying out the training and realizing it was actually kind of fun and actually kind of liked it. And then um, ultimately realizing that once I had experienced that aspect of the sport, I actually liked it better than short distance track. Which is interesting. I mean, the short distance track, it's it can be a lot of waiting around yes. as well <laughs> to do your totally. one event and your one event lasts 15 seconds or something like oh that gosh, exactly and, and, and yeah and the, the marathon like so much can unfold in one race right it's just it's this like depending on how long you're out there you know for most people between an hour and a half and two hour journey right where so many things happen so many things unfold there's so many variables it's just it's really interesting and I think that that to me was like I loved that I thought it was really exciting and made the return on investment of all that training seem more seem more worth it right um, and you can't deny you know once you get that marathon bug and you become part of that circuit you know it's a really exciting aspect of the sport of wheelchair racing and it's you know and you can't for the betterment of all of our athletes it's it's financially sustaining you know if you're talented at it those are all good things. And so once you, once you catch that bug, so to speak, or once you sort of get involved, it's hard to turn back. When did that start for you? What was your first, back in 2002, first race? First marathon? Um, marathon? Yeah, I think so. I think I did, my first was in New York in 2002, which was interesting because that was right when New York had started to have a wheelchair division. Because for a long time, because Boston had had a wheelchair division for a long time. Decades already. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then, and then 
New York had resisted. Yes. Yeah. Tooth and nail. Yeah. But that so was they, your first win, right? Was in was in New York? Was that yeah, it was. You know, I'll be frank with you, the women's division was like three people that year because because it had just started, right? Like that was like, they had no history, you know, with building a competitive division. So obviously proud to win it. My time wasn't good. <laughs> it was like, you know, that time would have never won Boston, where there, you know, at the time where there was a really rich field. But um, but obviously it's a great experience and um and uh certainly you know part of you know starting to enjoy the marathon distance and wanting to do more of it. Um and then uh and then yeah, and then over those next few years, again, you know, I was again by then in the Bay Area, I was working with that um triathlon coach and with a lot of other endurance athletes, and that's when my marathon um you know, uh, that was really the peak of my sort of um, competitive performance in marathon. Can you explain how this happens? I, I know a number of people who have gone to med school and have picked up marathon running. I mean, it's not yeah. like you're not busy right. <laughs> in med school and you're deciding, okay, so marathon seems like a good way to go where you're training for an hour, hour plus a day. Right in addition to all of the crazy studies that you're doing, how does that work? Can you, can you explain, maybe you can explain this from like the physiological side of things, like what's going on within your brain, within your body, as you're studying this, does it make you a better marathoner? How does this work? I think it does. I mean, I think that you see a lot of overlap there, mostly because of the um, personality type and the mindset that it takes to do both. It tends to attract the same, as I would say, phenotype, of person, <laughs> meaning like, um, you know, people who are pretty goal oriented, who really enjoy having like a linear focus on something and like seeking, trying, you know, enjoying the journey to do hard things. I think it draws the same pool of people. Um, and, uh, and so that honestly, I think that's why you see a lot of overlap between like physicians and, um, and, and runners and marathoners. I also think, although, um, Although marathon training is certainly time consuming, you know, the sport of running in general is a popular one with a lot of physicians because because we don't have a lot of time in the day and running is a pretty efficient way to stay fit. Right. So um, people, you know, physicians love to work, you know, potentially work a hard day or a long shift and that's stressful and you come back and you need a mental break and and um, and, uh, you know, you have that outlet of being able to, um, you know, if you're a runner, lace up your shoes or if you're a wheelchair racer, hop in your chair and get some miles in and just really decompress, right. And get the endorphins going back in your brain. And it's just like very health, good for your mental health. And this is my daughter, Stella. Can you say hi? Hi. <laughs> hi. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So on the whole, on the whole, I and think it, it drives a lot of the same people. And it's meditative in some ways, right? I mean, you, mm-hmm. Especially the better the the better shape you're in, the more you're able to kind of turn your brain off and kind of go and and forget that forget that you're running or sometimes you you get to a point and you go oh I'm here already I didn't realize I I huh I, I don't remember getting here it's kind of interesting so so in some ways I would imagine that that is that is really appealing after being so much in your head all day long and especially as a med student and then going into your residency where, you know, 
<laughs> you're under the gun. You're you're under fire the whole time, like trying to know what what you're supposed to do. When did so so you went from 2002 winning New York to then to then 2003 winning in LA, right? So this is so so you went from saying you wouldn't be competitive in your New York time to then suddenly like LA was was pretty well attended at that time. Yeah. Um, once I, once I got into it, well, you know, I think a couple things, um, I, I think making the jump to the marathon distance, you, once you have skill in the sport of wheelchair racing, that jump can initially seem intimidating, but once you start to get the miles in, you realize that, you know, you can do the mileage, um, to, to have the foundation of, you know, aerobic fitness and to be able to do that distance of event, as, as you know, you know, you still have to have a sprint in you, right? And so all of your track skills still translate really well and are still really helpful for your performance. Um, and, um, and, you know, once you get sort of over that fear factor of being able to do the mileage and start to learn some of the tricks of the trade of how to do a marathon well as a wheelchair racer, you know, some of the, the equipment you need, the, the way you have to manage your nutrition, that's one of the trickier aspects. Um, and once you get all that stuff down, then, um, then you can, you know, bring your times down and actually start to perform pretty well, pretty quickly. I think, um, you know, maybe not to the like absolute peak, but you can become competitive. You can make that transition from being a, a track athlete and a more like middle distance athlete to being a road racer and even a marathoner pretty quickly because the skill sets are actually more similar than you think. Right. Um, aside from that extra sort of layering on that extra layer of skill related to some of those um, marathon specific skills. Yeah, one of the trickiest things I think is um, of doing, of being a marathoner, a wheelchair uh, racer with marathon as your distance is um, how long you're in the chair, you know, how to create physical endurance to be in the chair that long. And then, um, your nutritional plan because of the position that you're in, um, you know, tucked into the chair, very arrow position with your hips really flexed forward. You know, mo for most people, your trunk is either, you know, almost parallel or a little above parallel to the ground and um, being able to, to maintain nutrition and hydration to the level that you need to keep going and not crash without giving yourself this terrible indigestion. That's actually a really tricky thing. <laughs> I don't know. Crashing, you, you're saying figuratively crashing as yes. opposed to literally crashing. crashing. Right. Yes. You know, the bonk, so to speak. The bonk, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up using this like really, um, honestly, it tasted terrible, but it served the purpose. <laughs> but this really concentrated, I would, um, you know, have a camel back with a, not even full, like a, um, maybe a half or three fourths full with water. And then I would put in this pretty concentrated powder that was a lot of, you know, sugar and glucose and, and a little bit of protein, like that mix that you need um, so that I could take sips along the way. I would get a little bit of hydration um, and get some calories and get some carbs in to avoid that bonk. Um, and then a gel here and there like a gel at about a half hour and about an hour in, and I would tape them to the fork of my chair. Um, so that when I pulled the tape would pull the tape off at the same time and then squeeze it even with my glove on. And those, those, that those were my strategies. But if I, if 
I overdid it too much on the fluids, I would immediately start to get this heartburn and, and then you're done for the day, right? So being in that body position that you need to perform well in a racing chair, and then also being able to um, fuel adequately for a marathon distance is really tricky. Yeah, because you're crammed right over your stomach, really. Yeah, you're like, exactly. And you're flexing forward like thousands of times in the, over the course of that race and like compressing your stomach. So it's much different than running it and um, from a positional standpoint. And um, I think a lot of athletes struggle with that. I'm sure that if we, if there are others listening out there and we did a poll, everyone has like probably wildly different strategies of how they manage. Um, but it, it's, and yeah, it's something you have to practice, right? You have to figure out what works for you in a lot of trial and error. Well, it is. And, and it's different than the runners where the runners go up to the table and they grab their drink of water or their Gatorade or whatever it is, or whatever mix, especially now you're seeing with like the elite runners where they have their specific mix, but that's just not really an option for the wheelchairs. And you end up carrying your stuff with you. So you're talking about camelback that is strapped to your chair. So that then you have the little, you can, you can sip out of your camelback as you're going, as you're going along, which is, which means you're carrying additional weight. It's kind of more, similar to cycling right than it, than it is to running in that respect what was the wh- when did you run your first boston did you win the first boston that you raced or no no i got runner up the first one i raced to um christina rip um who is primarily she's well known for her career in wheelchair basketball but she had she was a talented wheelchair racer too really talented and yeah really talented yeah so we had a honestly a great highly competitive race it was um 2003 and um and we were together the whole race we were battling it out against the um the two primary um the other top uh female wheelchair racers in that time frame were um uh, two there were many but the most competitive were two women from switzerland um edith hunkler and sandra graf and so it was sort of this like swiss u.s slugfest out on the course and we kept like you know passing the draft back and forth everyone had different strengths so Edith and Sandra were both really talented coasters like we talk about that hill at mile 15 on the course you know through um Wellesley into Newton Lower Falls they would scream down that hill and um Christine and I were both smaller and lighter and had a better strength to weight ratio but because of that just being lighter um you know, carried less speed into the coasts. And so um, I remember, you know, my main goal that year and the subsequent years, because I raced Edith all those years, was to, um, you know, stick with the pack for the first 15 miles. You know, when we hit that downhill, not get dropped by too much that I couldn't catch them back on the hills. <laughs> and so, so, and Chris and I really had the same strategy because we were built quite similarly. And so we um, were able to, for the most part, hang on on that, that descent. And then um, we were both really good climbers. So once we hit the, you know, turned right onto Calm Ave and hit Heartbreak Hill, which by the way, is not a hill singular. It's, I always say it should be Heartbreak Hills because it's like a series of hills. <laughs> and um but once we hit those hills, we were able to pretty quickly pass them and drop them on the hills. And then um, and then it was just the two of us and we battled it out to the finish. And she it was my first Boston. So she took the that last corner onto Wilson Street. Um, she took the corner better. And when we came out of that corner, she was like three or four feet ahead of me. And I couldn't I couldn't make up the, that that gap. 
So I, and that's what, was, that's like your 400 meters or whatever. Yeah. Kind of thing from, from that turn to the yeah. finish line. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just spent just to the, I just didn't have quite enough to like make up the gap at that point. Right. So she, you know, came out of that corner in the lead and then kept the lead. Um, but it was, I mean, obviously it was a great race and super proud to come in runner up that year. Um, but it really, it really made me want to win. <laughs> so when I came back in 2004, you know, I was so focused and so intent on trying to bring him a win. And, um, and, you know, similar race dynamics, interestingly, Chris was actually also there in 2004. I think she, um, and this is like back to our point about all the interesting things that happened on throughout the course of a marathon. I think that year, if I recall, Chris had a flat. So, um, so, you know, about midpoint through the race, like she was out and I was like, all right, okay, one down. <laughs> and then, you know, which obviously you don't wish it on anybody, but when it happens and you know, it's someone who is one of your stiff competitors, you'll take it. Right. <laughs> so, so there's so, a lot that can happen out there. A lot that can happen out there. People in you. Massachusetts, yeah. No, the next time it'll be you, right? So, um, so by the time we hit the hills, Christine already was out of the race. Um, I was still there with the Swiss women, and I knew that um, that because um, I was in the pack that was left, I was that I was the strongest climber. I knew that I had a good chance, like a reasonable chance of winning. And so when we hit the hills, I just hit like hit the hammer and um, like gave it 110% effort up those hills and uh, to try to get, because I knew it was about like get the widest gap possible so that by the top of the hills, when the course flattens out again, and there are even some slight downhill sections where I knew again, they would be faster on the downhills. I had to have a big enough gap at the top of Heartbreak Hills to um, keep that lead through the finish. How does that work psychologically for you? Because I mean, Boston's a sport, Boston's a race that breaks down into, like, I mean, especially for the men, like Ernst was famous for going right from the start and yeah. taking advantage of that downhill at the beginning and yeah. maintaining it, which is exactly what Marcel did last year. Right. And you've got right. one of the best hill climbers ever in Daniel Romanchuk, who's <laughs> chasing behind I mean I Daniel's hill climbing blows me away like yeah I watched we've both done the Cedar Town race yeah down in Georgia and he went world record in that in that 5,000 and was with Aaron Pike going up that hill which television never makes it look quite as quite as much of a hill as it is but I know that it's a hill and he yeah. went through that and did not seem to slow down. Like he was going as fast going <laughs> up that he was going 15, 16, 17 miles an hour. It looked like going right, up right. this hill. Right. And, and yet that's what happened last year was Marcel went off the front and Daniel wasn't able to catch him up where the women ha have often been a little bit more clustered. There's been a little bit more of a pack mm -hmm. for the women. Typically what's the psychological part though? Cause there's an easy, as a hill climber, do you look at them and go, oh, like they didn't have to do anything to gain distance on me going downhill. But then as the, as the coaster, there's nothing that they can do to keep up with you going uphill. What, yeah. how did you play that psychological game? 
I think it's a really interesting one. Um, and I think if man, it's like such a huge psychological advantage to both sides, because I think it, it's so frustrating when, you know, you have the gear and the setup and you're doing everything possible to stay arrow and you're in that tuck and you're, body and chair will just not take you any faster, right? <laughs> because you only weigh like a hundred pounds compared to your competitor who may weigh 130, right? You know, in the women's division at least. Right. And um, and you know, you can do everything you can, you know, you 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 optimize all the print, everything that's within your control, you optimize. You know, you when you're cresting a hill, you make sure you keep pushing through the crest, right? And, and accelerate as much as you can at the top of the hill before you have to stop pushing because your wheels start to spin too quickly. And you obviously optimize your commitment, equipment, make sure everything, the alignment is perfect. You know, as much as you can design, you know, get a design and design the chair to be aero, tuck, helmet, all of it. And, and, and that's all you can control. And then there's some things that are just out of your control. So that's really frustrating. Um, and then on the flip side, I think there's nothing more demoralizing than having a good lead and just getting like dropped like a bad habit on a hill by someone who just like, you know, you're a strong athlete and you're there, you're like grinding up the hill, and someone like Daniel or potentially me back in the day, you're just like, doop, 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 right by like, looking like it's looking like it's effortless. Right. And so um, I think both are demoralizing in different, in different directions. And, um, and, uh, but you gotta, I mean, it, you, you just gotta, capitalize on your strengths as any athlete does. And, um, and then you also know, going in, you know, dependent on what your strength is, you tend to know which courses are good for you and will treat you a little bit better and where you have a better shot. You know, Boston tends to be a good course for, um, climbers because it ends with climbing, right? So if the gap that you get in the climb, you can often keep till the end. It's the same thing, the same advantage that Jean used, Jean Driscoll, and through all of her wins, you know, she was also a very strong climber. Um, but then you have an athlete like Ernst where they can just get such a massive gap in that first downhill section that nothing, even if they're a weak climber, you're just not going to catch them. <laughs> so um right. So and Ernst Boston, wasn't a weak climber, but he just wasn't the best climber. Right. Right, exactly. And so, um, and so, um, uh, yeah, I think, I think, you know, you tend to know which courses suit your strengths. Um, it, Boston's an interesting one because it has such dynamic shifts of, you know, of um, elevation and it's a point to point. So um, different than a loop course, right, where you're going to end ultimately that the elevation is net neutral and um you know and you're gonna um you know you're gonna end at the same place you started in terms of um at least in terms of elevation well things so, so much too right i mean for you you won twice in a row one at 139 and the other at 147 right so so that's a pretty big difference, eight eight minutes in terms of the difference in time, right? And mm -hmm. so, but a, a lot of that isn't necessarily you. It's not necessarily that you're going slower. It's that the conditions are right. generally different, right? If you get a headwind, right. it, it changes the course immensely. If you get a tailwind. Yes. Yep. And they're, again, unique to Boston. You know, it's a coastal city, right? So those winds make a mass in a, on a, in a point to point race where you're going from inland towards the coast <laughs> in a coastal city, 
those wins make a massive difference and so much more of a difference for the wheelchair racers and the wheelchair division than the runners. Clearly, it, it matters for everyone, but um, you know you can't deny that when your um, when your sport um, involves this piece of equipment on wheels where there are coasting dynamics and drafting dynamics that play, that the wind you know makes a massive difference. And so, and I mean, I think I mean, look, we saw. Um, uh, um, oh my gosh, um, ah, I'm blanking on her name. The woman who pushed sub 130. Um, just uh, Manuela. Manuela. We saw Manuela go sub 130 <laughs> on, on a really good day um, in Boston. I mean, that's incredibly fast, incredibly fast. You know, you know, all record breaking by all accounts, and um, that's what that's what a good day at Boston can do when the conditions are favorable. A great day in a lot of ways, right? I mean, that was warm. There was a tailwind the whole way. It was, yes, yes. You were going much faster than. <laughs> yeah, versus 2018, which was. <laughs> which was exactly the opposite of. Exactly the opposite. <laughs> when can I finish? When can I stop? Yes, exactly. So do you continue to watch the competitors now? The. So, so, so like, particularly like the women's division, I mean, you're talking about Manuela, uh, who's, who's been dominant and, and actually coming off of like Tatiana mm -hmm. McFadden being so, so dominant mm -hmm. and then having the blood clots and, and basically Manuela kind of filled that void. Mm -hmm. But then have you, have you watched some of the other athletes to see kind of what they've done? What's your feeling with uh, sort of like the field of, of athletes? Because it's so many different skills, right? Yeah. 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 I'm really excited about the field this year. Um, I mean, the women, I think on the women's side, I'm just so proud that to continue to see the sport grow and all these talented women come up the ranks and, you know, obviously Manuela, Tatiana, just an absolutely incredible legacy in the sport and still out there performing, you know, incredibly well. Um, you know, Manuela really having several dominant years in terms of her wins of the world marathon majors, um, and then, and then, you know, folks who have always had a lot of promise and have always been incredibly talented, but now really, really peaking and, and coming through and breaking through like Susanna, right? And, um, uh, you know, to see her uh, and to see her perform so well in Tokyo was just thrilling. And she's just such a fantastic person that um, I'm just so happy for her. And so, you know, proud of her not in a not in a maternalistic way but just of how hard she's worked and um how much that's paying off now well describe that too i mean like what she did in tokyo i mean the five thousand yeah. in tokyo is amazing right amazing amazing yeah she just peaked like perfectly peaked for the games yeah went with five laps to go yeah. on her own for seven laps was was one second off the world record yeah you know, and, and then went out on her own in the, in the marathon, but then, then got hit by a car yeah. that's fall. Right. And so she's coming back and, and I actually talked to her the other day and she said, well, no one knows what to expect from me because I don't know what to expect. From <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. You got to test the waters a little bit. Yeah. I think everyone will be understanding of whatever comes, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but, you know, but it, Case in point, it was just so exciting to see her have that peak for Tokyo and to see all of that hard work pay off. And, you know, it's always so great to see a diverse field of women and a strong field of women where, you know, like anyone 
in that field could actually bring home a win on the right day. They play their cards right. They yeah. Could, and and the yeah, and things work out. The the right conditions or something like that can really play into somebody's somebody's strengths. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and we need to do. We need to continue to build. I mean, our women's fields are still smaller than our men's fields and you know we still all need to continue to work together to elevate the sport and um, open it up and bring more opportunity to to women right and to um, young women who may be interested in the sport or who show promise um, still a lot of work to do but I think um, you know it's it, it, the sport is still alive and well and um, you know really excited about this current generation of athletes who are continuing to hey break records and continuing to put push things forward and demonstrate that we continue to get better year after year after year with equipment innovation and training innovation and um a lot of hard work so it's just really exciting how much does your role as a doctor bring you back into the sport because i mean yeah. rehab and and sports medicine right i mean this is does that bring you into the sport? Does that bring you into contact? Are you are you working with any athletes? Yeah, yeah, it brings me in a lot. Um, and I think you know, I interestingly, it was you know, in, in a lot of ways by design, right? Because I knew that clearly, you know, adaptive sport, wheelchair racing was such a you know incredibly important part of my you know adolescence and young adulthood and my early life journey. That um, even when I knew that I was ready to move on to the next chapter in terms of my professional career. I knew that it, I needed to stay connected and that it always, I would always want it to be a part of my life. And so in many ways by design, I, um, you know, chose a profession where I could stay connected and continue to be involved and connect with athletes. And then from there even chose a subspecialty where I could <laughs> stay quite involved. So, um, so honestly, I feel as connected as ever, just in a different way. And I love it. Um, you know, we based in Boston, we have um, uh, at Spalding Rehab Network, we have a strong and vibrant adaptive sports program that's really obviously more community based and grassroots really meant to get people out there and connected back to sport after they experience a significant injury or illness, um, like a new spinal cord injury or a stroke or, you know, anything. And, um, and being a part of helping to develop that program is so fun because it's so important to have that opportunity as a component of the rehab process, right? To get people back to what they love. And then because we're in this academic environment, we have the ability to um, supplement that with research, right? And with use of really rigorous processes that demonstrate that it works and demonstrate the impact. And that helps to then you know, get more resources and generate, you know, having the data to show impact obviously helps to continue to build the opportunities. Um, and then really proud to continue my work with the International Paralympic Committee. Um, you know, I have the, because of that confluence of being a physician and also with my background as an athlete, I um, am able to serve on the medical committee of the IPC, which is super important in terms of thinking about you know, medical services, how we ensure that the Paralympic Games um, are, um, you know, um, that we're promoting athlete health and wellness and excellence and a gold standard in sports medicine at the Games um, and all the policies that go with that. You know, that work is really fun and, you know, I love the international component of it. And then in the U.S., you know, being able to work with the BAA and the USOPC to think more broadly about development of 
para sport and Paralympic sport, um, you know, at the Boston Marathon, for example, the wheelchair division has an incredibly rich history uh, now spanning many decades, but only in the last couple of years, we've been able to develop um, more para divisions um, for athletes with visual impairment and, um, uh, and amputees that um, align with the IPC classification system so that these athletes can actually do these as you know credible events as part of their circuit and under world athletics, so to speak, or, or um, uh, um, you know, through their IF, their International Federation, and win prize money, right? So expanding that opportunity, you know, it isn't just wheelchair racing. We, we have lots of athletes with disabilities who want to have that Boston experience. And then through USOPC, similarly, you know, there's always more to do, always more to grow, always more resources needed, but we're farther along than ever and really proud to be where we are now in terms of really creating equity um, for uh, Paralympic athletes, you know, parity and medal payment, for example, really thinking about, um, you know, all programs and services that are developed being equi equitably rolled out and available. For Paralympic athletes, including things like athlete mental health support and training support and, and so on. So I feel as plugged in as ever and incredibly proud to, you know, continue to have the opportunity to contribute. Yeah. And, and that equity in a lot of ways, sport is a great vehicle to, to create that equity. I remember as a kid seeing, seeing the wheelchair racers go by at Boston and going, wow, yeah. that looks amazing. Right. And and it starts exactly. changing the way that you that you see yeah. somebody. And I would imagine for you as a doctor, as you know, going through med school, a, as an athlete, an athlete differentiates you within those within that world yes. and, and within the professional world as mm -hmm. well. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, we've got to get you out of here, Sherry. So I apologize. <laughs> that we have to get you out of here but thank you so much for uh, for joining us and and giving us such great insight and making it exciting to to look forward to watching boston too yeah thanks chris this was so fun i love just talking about boston and reminiscing and sharing stories and sharing experiences this was really a blast so thanks for having me on and um hopefully see you soon or hear you soon uh, doing commentary on race day. I will be in town for a couple of days and then okay. we'll do the commentary. So, so maybe Great. I'll see you at one of the press conferences or something. Exactly. Can't wait. Thank you Can't so wait. much. And I won't be, I won't be going past your road though. So um, I, I won't be there. So I apologize on that one. Not race day at least. I most maybe definitely Maybe we'll both make a comeback, Chris. We can, maybe, maybe we'll see. It sounds like a great idea right now. <laughs> until we start doing the hard work and then go, ooh, exactly. this is kind of hard. So this is when, where you respect the current athletes that much more. But Absolutely. thank you so much, Sherry. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. We really appreciate it. I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, please tell your friends, please like us, please follow us. And this will be a traditional podcast. Go to where you find your podcasts and tune in and, and like and follow, and we will bring you another great story next week. So thanks a ton and see y'all later.